Seven Principles of Learning Better from Cognitive Science Written by Scott Young, August 2014 So at the time of writing this, I had just finished one of the best books I had read on the science of learning. Daniel Willingham is a Harvard-educated cognitive scientist who writes books and articles about how to learn and teach better. The title of his book, Why Don't Students Like School, is a tad unfortunate, I think, because the book isn't really about bored students. Instead, the book is divided into principles of learning. In order to make the cut, these principles need to fulfill a strict set of scientific criteria. First, they had to have robust scientific support. In Willingham's words, each principle is based on a great deal of data, not just one or two studies. If any of these principles is wrong, something close to it is right. Second, it doesn't depend on circumstances. These are facts about how human brains learn so they don't change whether you're learning Spanish or mathematics. Third, ignoring it would be costly. Using the principles versus not using them showed a big difference in results. The principles aren't just theoretical concerns, but practically significant. And fourth, it suggests non-obvious applications. The final criteria was that the implications of the principle should suggest new ways of teaching and learning. The book is excellent, and I highly recommend getting a copy for yourself as Willingham explains many of the details and implications of each of these principles. I wanted to discuss each principle briefly to share the implications it has for learning better. As a side note, the book actually lists nine principles, but two were more related to teaching, so I omitted them here. Feel free to read the book to get all nine. One, factual knowledge precedes skill. Einstein was wrong. Knowledge is more important than imagination because knowledge is what allows us to imagine. There is considerable research showing the importance of background knowledge in how to learn well. Without background knowledge, the kinds of insights Einstein praised are impossible. Careful studies show that having more background knowledge on a topic means that we can read it faster, understand it more, and remember more of it later. This means knowledge is like a kind of exponential growth, with past knowledge becoming a crucial factor in the speed at which more knowledge can be acquired. This also means that you cannot teach someone how to think without first teaching them a considerable amount of what to think. Thinking well first requires knowing a lot of stuff, and there's no way around it. Whatever aspect of what you learn your mind dwells on will be the part that is likely to be retained. If you, inadvertently, spend your studying time thinking about the wrong aspects of your studies, you won't remember much of use. The problem with this principle is that knowing about it is not enough. We can't constantly self-monitor our own cognition, noticing what we're noticing. So even if you try to pay attention to the right things, it can be easy to accidentally focus on less important details, which might take precedence in memory. This is the reason why highlighting is often a lousy tactic for reading textbooks. When you highlight, you're not focusing on the underlying meaning, but more observing that certain words are bolded or particularly emphasized in sentences. So you don't remember much. I recommend tactics like paraphrasing with sparse notes while reading, or using the Feynman technique, or taking pauses during a reading session to quickly recap what you just read. These are orienting tasks that encourage you to spend more time thinking about the underlying meaning, which is almost always what you want to be learning. This also shows one of the weaknesses I've seen in students who misuse analogies. If the analogy you make causes you to think about superficial details of a concept, and not the underlying structure, you'll only remember surface details on the test. A metaphor for voltage that uses volcanoes because they both start with the letter V 
won't help you with actual problems. The metaphor that voltage is analogous to height is useful because you're forced to think about what voltage means, in this case, the relation between gravitational and electrical potential energy. Interestingly, this also has implications for languages. The reason the sounds-like method for memorizing vocabulary words can work is because it forces you to think about how a word sounds more exactly. Having to come up with an image that links the sound forces you to spend an extra couple seconds really thinking about what the word actually sounds like, so you'll be more likely to remember it. Third, we understand new things in the context of what we already know. Abstract subjects like math, physics, finance, or law can often be hard for people to learn. The reason why is that we learn things by their relation to other things we already know. Willingham here suggests using many examples to ground a particular abstraction in concrete terms before moving on. I would also add that I believe people overestimate their ability to learn abstract things. As such, we tell ourselves we understand an idea without first grounding it in numerous examples or analogies. Smart learners correctly understand the brain's weakness for abstraction and build scaffolding to support new ideas before they fully set. Occasionally, when I recommend to students metaphors or analogies for learning a subject, they come up blank. And I admit it, it can be a tricky technique. But I believe part of the difficulty is that it points out when you don't really understand a concept. If you understand a concept but can't put it into a single example or analogy, then you don't really understand it at all. And you should first do something like the Feynman technique to try to get that understanding. Four, proficiency requires practice. The only way to become good at skills is to practice them. Additionally, some basic skills require thorough practice in order to become successful at more complicated skills. Math is an excellent example. You may have a conceptual understanding of calculus, but if you aren't fully fluent with algebra, it will take you hours to do a simple problem. The only way to make algebra automatic is to practice a lot of problems. Now, I've certainly been guilty of downplaying the importance of repetitive practice in some of my early writing, but there's no way I could have completed the MIT challenge or my language learning project without extensive time spent practicing the basic tools for each subject. Merely understanding isn't enough. Willingham suggests an alternative to repetitive practice which can be painfully dull. Learn harder subjects that require practicing earlier material. One study showed that those who took an algebra class showed rapid and predictable decline of their skills. The one group that didn't, those who learned calculus. Five, cognition is fundamentally different early and late in training. Should you learn physics like Isaac Newton? For that matter, should you learn science like a scientist, making hypotheses, testing experiments, revising your theory to fit the data? Willingham offers substantial evidence that the answer is no. I think there's merit in understanding how scientists perform their work, but it's also clear that knowledge creation and knowledge acquisition are very different. Because they are different, the learner needs to weigh them against each other. For most disciplines, understanding scientific facts is more important than scientific process, for the simple reason that scientific facts will inform our lives, but very few of us will ever do scientific research. The same applies to history, philosophy, and, well, nearly any other discipline of knowledge. Another implication of this is that the ideal method for learning a subject and creating knowledge within a subject will be different. Learning calculus and inventing calculus bear little resemblance, so don't worry if you can't learn calculus the way Newton did. You don't have to. Six, people are more alike than different in how we learn. 
Learning styles are bunk. There's no such thing as visual, auditory, or kinesthetic learners. This is also true for every serious theory of different cognitive styles of learning. Defending this conclusion does take a bit of thought, because to most people, the idea that people learn differently is so obviously true that it's weird researchers might say otherwise. But part of the confusion stems from the fact that different abilities can exist while styles do not. So what does that mean? Meaning Johnny might be really good at processing visual information and Mary might be very good at processing auditory information. So you show Johnny a map and he'll remember where everything is better than Mary. Play Mary a tune and she can hum it back a week later. But this isn't what the theory of learning styles is actually saying. It suggests that if you taught the same subject to both Johnny and Mary and played Johnny a slideshow and Mary an audiobook, they would learn better than if Johnny had listened and Mary had watched. And the experiments simply don't find that. This suggests that the way that we learn are more similar than they are different. Some people might be better at learning certain types of things than others, but given a particular subject, science hasn't found different ways of learning that are consistently better for some people, but not others. Seven, intelligence can be changed through sustained hard work. This is probably my favorite part of the entire book because it validates much of what I've said before. Intelligence is partly genetic and partly environmental. Innate differences do matter and some people are born with more talent than others. However, Willingham argues that intelligence is malleable. Psychologists used to believe intelligence was mostly genes. Twin studies and other natural experiments seem to bear that out. Adopted children turn out to be more like their biological parents than their adoptive parents in many dimensions. However, now the consensus has turned far more towards nurture rather than nature. One of the biggest pieces of evidence is the Flynn effect, which is the observation that people over the last century have gotten smarter, and the effect is too large to be from natural selection making people smarter. Genes may have an important role in intelligence, but most of that role is played out through the environment, not independent of it. So if you re-listen to this first principle that I listed, this shouldn't be surprising. Knowledge being exponential growth means that even a small initial advantage can quickly compound. If genes gave you a 5% head start in math in kindergarten, there may not be much of a difference between you and a similar child. However, expand that small initial advantage over 30 years and you might have someone who has done a PhD in physics and someone who stopped at high school. From a population standpoint, the difference between these two people might be explained by differences in genes. However, genes only created a small head start. Sustained hard work can help you set off your own exponential growth of learning in a domain as well. Concluding thoughts. I thoroughly enjoy this book, but don't let my brief summary and insights spoil it for you. It's a fairly easy read while still being smart and insightful. What's more, the book is based on robust research and science. In terms of my own more informal writing about learning, I was happy that most of the principles discussed in the book reflected my own thinking. It's comforting to see when the experiences I've gained from my own learning challenges converges on the serious work scientists are doing to understand the brain and how we learn. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott H. Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website, scotthyoung.com. Thank you.